The information shared in this podcast does not necessarily represent EVRMA's stance. These podcasts are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Hi, welcome to Fertilipod, a podcast by EVRMA. Dr. Andres Ritz. Welcome back to Fertilipod, the podcast where we discuss current topics and the latest research in the field of reproduction with some of the world's leading experts. Let's get started. In today's episode, we're having a chat about platelet-rich plasma and what potential it shows for reproduction. We've invited Dr. Emre Sali, who is the chief scientific officer here at EVRMA, and he is also a professor at Yale University. Dr. Sally does many of our coffee talks here on the show and participates in our journal clubs as well. Today, he's joining us as our expert, though. He has worked extensively on ovarian aging and reproductive senescence in general, and has recently published specifically on the use of platelet-rich plasma in our field. Dr. Sally, welcome back on Fertilipod. It's always a pleasure to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, you're doing a great job. It's uh, rising to the ranks of world's uh, successful podcasts, and I, I'm very happy and feel privileged to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I don't know about world successful podcasts, but we're we're, we're trying we're trying to make it. I think you're you're doing good. You're doing good. <laughs> let's let's take it from the top. Can you walk us through? I'm just going to call it PRP because I can't really say platelet-rich plasma many times. So. Can you take us through what is PRP? Give us a bit of a, of a background on this. I, I like it starting with the description uh, way. I, I went to a French run high school for eight years, and that's the, that's the primary thing they would teach you. Uh, I mean, first of all, before talking about platelet-rich plasma, it's, I think you know maybe not everybody remembers what plasma is. So plasma is clear. It is the straw-colored liquid portion. Uh, of the blood that uh, remains once you remove the red blood cells, the white blood cells, the platelets, and all other cellular components. It is the largest uh, portion of blood. Uh, it, it's approximately, yeah, it's more than 50% of the total. It contains water, of course, salts, enzymes, antibodies, and especially proteins such as growth factors, etc. Now, platelet-rich plasma, and some people call it autologous because most of its applications would come from autologous use. Let's say if I would need platelet-rich plasma, I wouldn't take it from someone else. And generally, they would be preparing it from my blood. And it is a concentrate of of a platelet-rich plasma protein that is derived from whole, whole blood. And uh, it's centrifuge basically to remove red blood cells primarily. I think one really important thing to to understand about PRP. And by the way, I I don't. I mean, I'm interested in PRP. I want to learn about PRP, but I'm not a promoter of PRP, or I don't sell PRP, and I I'm, I don't consider myself an expert of PRP. But uh, what is important to understand about PRP is it's not standardized. In, in a sense, so not 
every PRP preparation system does the same thing. There are different ways of preparing it, and there are different kits that have approvals from um, things like FDA or the European equivalent of FDA. And these companies, uh, these, these kits, when you use them to prepare PRP, they would tell you what percent of the specific component has been uh, kept and what percent has been discarded. Uh, and then and then how much you concentrated. For example, in one kit, uh, you may have 80% of the platelets, but it could be 1.6 or 1.8 times concentrated. So the concentration of platelet in the volume that you're injecting or you're using would be increased. Uh, let's say if you had four cc of concentrated in you, that would have 1.5 to two times more platelets than regular blood. Whereas let's say red blood cells could be 0.5% of, of what used to be. And it could be you know, 0.001 times concentrated, meaning extensively diluted. So what you are trying to get from this, uh, what, what people are trying to get from platelet-rich plasma is the what is in the plasma itself, as well as what is in the platelets, uh, which are the growth factors and cytokines. Interesting. And so you're, you're trying to apply this now or, or sort of researching the potential applications of this to address infertility related to ovarian aging, things like poor ovarian response, primary ovarian insufficiency. What, what have your studies consisted of and, and what have they shown? So basically, uh, we at EVRMA, we had um, an interest in, in clinical application of uh, of ovarian, you know, of discovering um, methods that could help patients who are diagnosed with either ovarian aging or premature ovarian failure or diminished ovarian reserve. Um, and within that context, we are constantly on the look for, uh, you know, newer technologies that are promoted. Uh, there are a number of us in the, in the group who, who have spent a sizable portion of their careers in, in the basic science laboratory. So we have an understanding of what a follicle is, how a follicle grows, how a follicle dies. I mean, as much as it's known for now, but again, I've been working on follicle biology since at least 2002. So it makes almost 20 years in animal models, in, in frog and mouse. So we have an understanding. And when we, we, we do follow other investigators attempts to break through from animal models to human. And then uh, each time we see something uh, within the context of EVRMA's research program, we find we apply our systems to test this information. We uh, often use both basic research parameters uh, as well, basic research models in animals such as mouse, uh, as well as uh, we sometimes do prospective cohort studies to see if it, the results are promising enough. Uh, and then if we believe uh, the benefits seem to out significantly outweigh the risks and there's an interest from our patients and our physicians, because there are some, sometimes there are certain interventions that seems quite promising to us, but our physicians don't feel they're safe enough or applicable enough to their patients. So they don't make it at AVRMA. So anyway, if all those criteria are met, then then we we establish randomized clinical trials. Up until now, you know, you probably know the 
the study by Elena Labarta, who, who showed that um, the application of augment, which is you know using autologous mitochondria to with in an attempt to re rejuvenate, I guess is the right word, eggs, didn't work uh, in improving outcomes in IVF. So that's one of the examples of of how we approach this. In my case, uh, I have I have read the papers that initially came uh, from Greece. And then I, I am originally from Istanbul, Turkey, and where I have many very uh, talented and successful colleagues there. And so, our experience in the uh, uh, with Dr. Yit Chakarolu and um, Dr. Bulan Turash from Istanbul at Ajibadem Hospital was that 311 women with POI, primary organ insufficiency, uh, based on ESHRA criteria, uh, underwent a PRP procedure. Uh, the first interesting finding was that 23 of these people conceived spontane spontaneously, I think it's around 8%, while waiting uh, to initiate, to be reassessed for fertility treatment. And 16 of those people under, you know, had a live birth. Uh, after that, the, rema of the remaining 288, um, uh, they were assessed monthly for four months. Um, a, to see whether they had any antral follicles to start initiate treatment. Uh, 87 of them had no antral follicles. The rest, so approximately 200 underwent ovarian stimulation. Uh, another 70 or so of those did not stimulate well, but 130 uh, underwent retrieval. Of those who underwent retrieval, uh, 82 of them were able to store embryos. Uh, or transfer. Many of them chose to store for a number of reasons, including ovarian banking, uh, so embryo banking. And um, and there were another 13 pregnancies of the people who did transfer and, and nine libraries. It is difficult to uh, really say like the per se pregnancy rate in this paper uh, because a number of patients uh, were just storing the embryos. So uh, for people who are diagnosed with premature ovarian insufficiency, uh, we thought this was a encouraging finding, and it is a finding that is uh, worthy of pursuing further, worthy of investigating further. Uh, there are other uh, findings of this paper. You should understand that uh, not only in this paper, in many others that are done by Antonio Pellicer and Sonia, you know, his group Sonia Herais and and Cesar Diaz, we keep learning, and and uh, and then based on what we're learning. Uh, we keep looking more carefully. And one thing that we realized in this paper is that if we divided patients based on their uh, status prior to PRP, uh, people who had AMHs that were in the lowest 25 percentile, they did worse, obviously, significantly worse. And similarly, uh, top 25% of the highest FSH group also did worse. And people who had an enteral follow-up count of zero before treatment also did significantly worse. So what we're learning here is that basically, if you don't have follicles, this, this does not really seem to work. Uh, and that is why, uh, you know, it is just a helping procedure with people who still have some potential and we just have to define where is the cutoff? Who are the people who are more likely to, to benefit from it? Uh, 
I don't know if you would um, want to ask another question here or <laughs> would, but there's something I want to say uh, importantly. Go ahead. Uh, uh, so definitions play a key role in medicine. So we, in order to communicate with each other, uh, all physicians and nurses and embryologists need to define uh, certain certain clinical um, scenarios. It doesn't mean that these scenarios actually fully exist and fully boxed in. So it, I, I, of course, as an REI, I do criticize the MFM, and it, like I think this is this is really exaggerating MFM because they people call pre, you know premature labor, and we think that they're all the same. They all have the same pathogens. Nothing can be further from the truth, right? It's uh, people may have preterm labor for hundred different reasons. And, and you have to, when you investigate those, and when you investigate treatments for, for those scenarios, you will need to actually know the subgroups. Otherwise, you would never find something that really benefits everybody. I think, uh, although I don't think uh, ovarian uh, aging or premature ovarian failure or uh, dimensionism are that diverse, there are different, first of all, there are different severity in those patients. Some of them really never generate a follicle, others, and there's enough, actually pretty old papers showing that if you really follow people diagnosed with premature primary ovarian insufficiency, you would find that they do ovulate time to time. There's more than one paper and really nicely done. It requires a lot of effort. You need to find these papers, follow them for 12 months, actually, and, and it's been done before. And so if there is a woman who was followed for 12 months and never, ever made any follicles, that woman is probably less likely to respond to PRP than another woman who has followed 12 months and made follicles four times. But when they present to you, you may not know uh, which group they fall in. And also because you don't know that, then when you do these studies, you really don't know, you know, you can't really easily separate which group would benefit from it. So, so we're at really at the beginning of it. We, by no means, we, we say that that study that we performed was final and we're not concluding that women with primary organ insufficiency should do PRP. There's, that's absolutely not our conclusion. But I think it is worthy of our effort and, and investment to see whether or not this is actually a beneficial treatment. Right. And to summarize just the findings of, of what you found of, of the 311 women that you had to begin with, 23 ended up having spontaneous, spontaneous pregnancies after two cycles of treatment with PRP. Um, 11 were delivered at term, five were ongoing at the time of publication, and several of the remaining women um, ended up cryopreserving embryos, which of course, like you're saying, are, are very promising results. And they are not unlike results we've seen with other techniques. Earlier this year, we had on here on the podcast, we had Sonia Reif, um, and we spoke about stem cells and her ASCOT research. And it seems like we're starting to see a number of alternatives to address POI, POR, such as ASCOT, uh, Kawamura's hipposignaling disruption and the like, kind of become more and more formed. How does PRP fit into these or even stack up against these other options? 
So, so this is a very good question, and we always um, put that into context with our patients. Right now, I see three main line of uh, research uh, that is trying to obtain all sites, that is trying to help obtain all sites from women with um, POI and POR. One of them is a I mean, they, these things also keep changing names, so it's a little confusing for the listener, but one of them uh, has been termed in vitro activation. Uh, it was initiated, it was first described by Kawamuro and his, and, uh, in Aaron Shue's lab, I would say in, in Stanford. And the idea is that if you do block HIPO pathway by cutting the ovarian cortex into pieces, you may activate uh, follicular growth. Uh, this showed some promise. Um, our EV has uh, put a lot of effort and financial support into investigating this, uh, both as a cohort study and a randomized clinical trial, the results of which has been submitted to ASM 2021 and submitted uh, for publication. Um, I don't want to steal the thunder of Cesar Diaz, who spent a lot of time doing the study and writing it. So uh, so he will, he will, I'm sure, announce his findings. But yes, that is, this is a promising venue of research and can be done. The personal problem I have with that is that for me to, to put our patients in the United States through a surgery to remove the pieces from their ovarian cortex and cut them. By the way, Kawamura and, and Aaron Shue initially not only uh, fragmented ovarian cortical tissue, but they also incubated the tissue with um, to modulate AKT P10 pathway that further stimulates folliculogenesis, follicle growth. Either alone, just just the, just the fragmentation, or together with uh, um, biochemical manipulation, this may not be such a feasible intervention in the United States. I'm not so sure my patient, unless the, the effect is extremely well demonstrated and it has a huge effect size. Uh, I'm not sure that people would just want to go undergo a surgery and maybe another one, although there's, although Cesar Diaz and some others can do it in a single surgery, remove the ovarian cortex, cut into pieces and put it back. But initial description was not a single surgery. So even one surgery may be too much and the effect was not as high as people would have hoped for. This, the other um, protocol that was developed by Antonio Pelisen and Sonia Herais is the um, ASCOT, which uh, requires mobilization of bone marrow drive stem cells into the blood circulation, collection of those blood cells, and then, and then injection into uh, the actually the, the ovarian artery. Now that was the initial paper, I think, uh, they, we all learned a lot from that paper, a lot. Uh, and, and maybe it's not really necessary to do the catheterization into the um, ovarian artery, which would make it much more feasible. Still giving patients um, stem cell mobilizer is a question mark. Again, it may have certain limitations in the United States, even, even getting through the IRB is not that easy with um, stem cell mobilizers. It, you can do it, but it's, it's not that easy. Uh, but the I know for, for a fact that their findings are uh, extremely exciting. And currently we are doing a randomized clinical trial to test it. And 
how does PRP compare to those two? Well, PRP's initial findings, first of all, doesn't seem to be any worse than the other two. I'm not going to say any better because it's not a one to comparison, but it doesn't seem any worse to me. And it's much easier. I think that's how PRP compares. And we like easy things uh, as human beings, as patients, as doctors, unless the more difficult intervention has a really well-proven benefit. Um, at the end of the day, though, your question is extremely important because all these three things that seem to be kind of quite different, right? I mean, one of them you're cutting over into pieces. The other one, you're mobilizing bone marrow drive stem cells. On the third one, you're getting plasma and platelets from blood. And they all seem to be doing the same thing because in my opinion, all they're doing is they're helping activate some of the remaining few follicles in women who are having difficulty activating them. At the end of the day, all these three pathways are leading to secretion of certain activating substances in the form of growth factors and cytokines. And that's that's important. I'm going to jump in right here because you mentioned something very interesting about kind of activating those few remaining follicles. And you were talking about you know nomenclature and naming things properly earlier. And I wanted to ask you on your thought, and I know you and I have spoken about this before many times, on the nomenclature of these techniques, right? We are we hear them spoken about very often as ovarian rejuvenation. And I know you, I wanted you to share your view on what we should really be calling these and whether we are or not, in fact, making the ovary any younger. Yes, I kind of expected you to ask this question. So I Googled what rejuvenation is. <laughs> okay. and, 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 and then uh, what I found is that rejuvenation means uh, the action of rejuvenating or the state of being rejuvenated, which means restoration of youthful vigor. Now I will have to uh, Google vigor. <laughs> but but and wiggle when vigor is physical strength and good health or effort, energy and enthusiasm. So uh, so basically I don't think that people who use the word rejuvenation made a major mistake or anything, it's fine to use it. But I would rather not. And the reason I would rather not is because of my view on ovarian aging. And my view on ovarian aging is, is maybe different than some other very important experts in the field who are very active in the research. I see ovarian aging as decreasing number of eggs and decreasing quality and the two, I obviously everybody see, most people see this that way, but I don't see the two to be very interrelated. What I'm trying to tell you is that there are certain genetic scenarios that I was able to, we were able to induce in, in the mouse where I can make the mouse eggs really sick and they die and it's a, it becomes an ovarian aging model because the mouse has a lot, very few eggs and it, then it runs out of eggs and it looks like a poor ovarian response mouse and then it becomes a, a ovarian insufficiency mouse. But obviously it's not easy to have the quality aspect in the mouse with, with the increased aneuploidy, et cetera. What we understand from initial studies, again, 
um, some clinicians, when you look, when they look at these initial studies that were using Kawamura's IVA or Heraizis Ascot or the PRP, they say, ah, oh, I don't care about these. They're not randomized clinical trials. Actually, these are very worthy studies because we learn a lot from them. One thing we learn from, for example, Sonia Heraizis stuff is that uh, when you're old, you're old, which means that even if you really give all these things to a 44-year-old and you get the um, follicle to, to grow and obtain an egg and fertilize the egg and turn it into a blastocyst, you find that you end up finding out that it is aneuploid. So, uh, so in that sense, do I, in, in the most optimistic thinking, do I expect that any of these interventions would decrease aneuploidy in an, in women, and my answer would be no. But it's not based, you know, it's not based on a large study. But I'm not optimistic that they would help that because true rejuvenation in a woman would be to activate follicles and then get eggs that are euploid and generate embryos that are euploid. So I really don't think using any of these mechanisms would. Uh, improve the uh, euploidy, and therefore I will have difficulty calling it true rejuvenation. And for that reason, I would prefer the term uh, follicular activation. And I I wanted to ask you, aside from using PRP to improve fertility secondary to, to ovarian aging through follicular activation, are there any other uses for PRP in reproduction? Uh, well, as some of our colleagues are trying it in women with um, resistant hypoproliferative endometrium. Uh, as you know, well, you work actually with uh, Dr. Taylor at Yale and, and Dr. Taylor, uh, it was the person, my, my longtime friend, colleague and uh, chair at Yale, it was the person who showed the potential role of stem cells in endometrial um, uh, preparation every month and, and in presence of stem cells. And then the idea came, then it was tried actually within the context of EWI, whether or not it would help to put some stem cells into the endometrium of women who have Asherman syndrome. And then others came with the idea of whether or not this would be helpful in women with uh, just thin endometrium. You know, we all, we all clinicians have some patients who just don't develop a thick enough endometrium that you would feel comfortable transferring an embryo. We all struggle with this uh, day in and day out. Uh, and, and it's a very frustrating experience for, for both physicians and patients. Uh, so we're all looking for things to do in these patients. You know, a lot of interventions are currently used by my colleagues and myself, and none of them are proven to be effective. We still use them because you got to try what you can try. And some of, I, I'm aware that some people have been trying endometrial PRP uh, inject, some people injected into the cavity, others use different methods and they, um, they seem to find encouraging results. And I also know that there's a discussion of injection into the testes, but I really don't wanna, but yes, it is being used in endometrium and in testes. Okay, sounds good. I'm happy you're not telling us any of this other people's data because that way, that way we can invite them on the podcast some other day. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, what what do you think is is next in this area? I mean, it's definitely very promising. 
the results you've you've shown of the use of PRP in in the ovary and I mean for ovarian aging, the endometrium area is definitely very promising. What are we going to see next? Are we going to see the use of PRP for other things? Do we need to focus research in some particular area that we need to improve specifically? How do you see this in the, in the near future? So um, I think the person who is really doing it right is, is Sonia Heraiz and, and working with, uh, with Antonio Pellicer. On one hand, she's going for the big picture, trying to see whether the whole thing works, the whole mobilized you know, stem cells derived from the bone marrow, it's activated, is it working? But she's also putting in the time and the effort to see whether there are specific components of this big soup that would be helpful. So in, if we could just find that, maybe we don't need to put the whole thing in, right? That, that would be... So within the context of PRP and the likes, uh, PRP, ASCOT, or, or, or uh, IVA, or OFA, uh, I think what we need to do is, one, to determine, does it really work? And that would require randomized clinical trials. And I would like to take this opportunity to tell you that EVRME is conducting randomized clinical trials in all of these, and all of them, <laughs> inshallah, will be, uh, will be completed within two years. Uh, some much earlier than that. So it is very, it, and it is very possible that when we do the randomized clinical trial, we will find that they just don't actually help. The reason why it is very possible is that many of these positive outcomes reported with PRP, et cetera, and the likes have been with continuous follow-up these patients after PRP for four to six months and inducing them whenever they have a decent amount of endo decent or some amount of follow up counts. And it is really possible that if you gave that chance to women with POR or POI without the PRP, maybe they would do the same. So we will just find that out. And, and, and if it's not working, we will move on. So, uh, so, but within the, within the field of ovarian activators, I think, uh, the, the way we approach this is one, to see whether they work and which subgroup of people they work, because there's no way they're going to work in everybody. And then the second thing we're doing is to see what in these big conglomerate of molecules really is helping the follicle to grow. So those are the two approaches we're taking. Uh, as far as what else in the future, I think the uh, golden uh, path is, is to go with the other aspect of ovarian aging, which is uh, aneuploidy and trying to improve the quality of the embryo, quality of the egg. That is, in my opinion, a more difficult task. And we have tried a number of paths. Uh, some are submitted as abstracts again this year. They, they didn't work. <laughs> I have to tell you, we worked very hard for it. Uh, we, have, we have developed, uh, I don't want to say developed, but we have discussed for long, long hours uh, to establish the best clinical scenario to test methods that claim to improve embryo viability, embryo euploidy. Uh, we came up with some, we agreed upon some, and then uh, using those, we, we spent uh, a number of, uh, quite a large number of samples, uh, randomizing them to different treatments, and we did not find 
and improvement. Uh, we will continue to search that. We have some targets for it, but I really think, to me, it's the most exciting thing in the next 10 years. This is this is the thing I, I want to spend my time on. Yeah, it's, it's very, very important, right? First finding, of course, who it applies to best within the huge pool of POI, POR, what within the big soup of PRP or within the factors that come with ASCOT and the like is actually having an effect. And of course, can we use this not just to make more eggs, but to make better eggs, which is of course the, the, the end game. I think this has been super enlightening. Thank you so, so much, Dr. Sally, for spending time with us today. My pleasure, it's, uh, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. This has been another episode of FertiliPod by EVRMA. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week for more research and topic discussions on all things reproductive medicine. See you next week. Thank you.